Lord, we are here to worship you and to rejoice in you and to glory in Christ Jesus. And we recognize, O oh Father, that as we come to your book, that we come to the words of life and we come to the sufficient scriptures. It is by your, your word that you create faith in the hearts of those who were redeemed and those who would be redeemed by your mercy. And so we ask, Lord, because you have invited us to ask, that you would send your spirit to do his work in our hearts today and especially in those who perhaps they have always thought that they've known you and, and really haven't, that today might be the day that unexpectedly perhaps to them, you create that faith in them that causes them to be born again to a living hope and change them, Father. I pray also that you would encourage your people as we talk about prayer again this morning. I pray, Father, as we watch David wrestle with his fearful and difficult trial, that we would be pressed and prodded and motivated and humbled to fly to Christ in prayer and to find in him everything that you have promised to be for us in Christ. Lord, we ask all of these things because we know at least we believe that they would be honoring to you. And so we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are in Psalm 27 once again. Because last week, that six points that turned into seven, and I only preached two, uh, we have some cleaning up to do. So we're going to finish the rest of these today. And um, so if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. In our study of Psalm 27, our focus has been on reasons or motives for prayer in the day of trouble. And I don't know what your day of trouble is, and I hope you're not experiencing one right now, but you may be. And if you're not now, you will. You will. And uh, that's just to encourage your heart this morning. <laughs> uh, but you have Christ and his word and his church, and most of all, you have God. And David knew that. Unfortunately, for many of us, if we were completely honest, we would have to admit that we really don't pray very much. After all, it takes time to pray, it takes thought to pray, it takes discipline, concentration, something this generation is not known for. Um, if you're going to really pray, it requires these things, especially if we intend to pray for more than five or ten minutes. Now, as I say that, I sense the need to also say that I, too, feel the sting of Jesus' words to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when he came to them after a while and asked, what? Could you not watch and pray with me for one hour? I wonder how many believers here, hearing my voice today, uh, here in this room or, or down the hall in the overflow, or on the internet today. I wonder how many of us um, can look back over this past year and say that we ever spent one full hour with the Lord alone. I don't say that with an air of condemnation at all, but with a desire to ask whether we would really even know what to do if we, if we planned on praying for an hour and so it's not the focus of these two messages, but I want you to see it as perhaps a tool that will help you. These six things, and, and there are others that are not included in this six because they aren't, they're not in this particular text, like praying prayers of confession. That's not here. But you could almost, if you want to spend an hour with God, take these six things, add a couple more, and just work through them. Or if you don't know what to pray, look at these six areas that David works through through Psalm 27 and say, well, perhaps I could start with this or I could start with that or I could start with the other. And perhaps that would lead you into a, a vital and vibrant hour of prayer. 
I think this passage is helpful in this regard because David seems to approach God in so many different ways in this text. I mean, he's in serious trouble, and you know what it's like to pray when you're in serious trouble. I mean, every, every sort of emotion comes out and every need, and, and you want to pray in faith, and yet you're desperate, and, and all of these things are coming out. And, and that's what we find in David. But as David does it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing these things down for us so that we can look at them and say, oh, I could, I could approach God this way. I can approach him this way. I don't have to be afraid to approach him at all. He invites me. And so we find in verses 1 through 3, for example, that David shows us what it looks like to pray because, simply because our confidence is in God. And then in verse 4, David models for us what it looks like to pray because we simply want to fellowship with God. And today we come to the third motive for prayer, namely, that we should pray because we find our refuge in God. But of course, before we dive into that, we should read the text of Scripture. So stand with me and let's read Psalm 27 just to refresh our hearts and our minds. I may not have time to cover every word of this psalm this morning. You're not surprised by that. Uh, We'll we'll do almost every word, I think, Um, but it's just good for us to read the whole thing. Let's read every word of it and, and delight in what the Lord is feeding us this morning. Psalm 27 of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me and eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though the war, the war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices of shouts of joy And I will sing and make melody to God, the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, Lord, your face I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but but the Lord, the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. And so today we we pick up in verse 5 where we learn that we can pray because we find refuge in God. And let's read verse 5 again. For, uh, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent, and he will lift me high upon a rock. Now, what is David's day of trouble? I love, I love this phrase, day of trouble, and I love the fact that he doesn't tell us what his day of trouble was, lest we think that it only applies in that case. The reality is, All of us periodically face the day of trouble. And the most difficult days of trouble are when the trouble comes from people problems. When when we're just having a hard time with someone, they're they're on the attack. 
or, or they've disappointed, or they have, they have made you the object of ridicule or bullying, or maybe in the workplace, they, they just, they're trying to throw their weight around, and they're doing you harm and undermining your leadership. There's any number of ways, and, and, I, and I appreciate the fact that David leaves it open-ended, or the Holy Spirit left it open-ended for us, so we can apply it to our own circumstance when we need it. You remember, uh, once again, we, we come to, the, to this day of trouble, this fierce trouble that he's tempted to be afraid in the midst of. But David has something in the midst of his day of trouble that the world doesn't have. You know what he has? He has a hiding place. He has a hiding place. In the previous verse, David looked to God for one thing, namely that he might have the awesome privilege of actually fellowshipping with Yahweh. He wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. He wanted to behold the beauty of the Lord. And by the way, just the, the previous chapter, verse 8, from, in my Bible, it's at the top of the page. And verse 8 says this of 26, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. David loved the tabernacle, but he knew that being in the home of the Lord, the household of the Lord, wasn't limited to the tabernacle. And, and by the way, the word behold here, to behold the beauty of the Lord, the, behold is a strong term. It's not a weak term. This is not a quick glance. This isn't wake up in the morning and crack open your Bible and take a peek at God. No, no, no. David desires to look deeply, to gaze intently with wonder and to glory in God, to meditate on his attributes and consider all of his infinite perfections. Now, that'll keep you busy in prayer, just thinking about them. This is the one thing David desires. Wherever he is, may he be in the house of the Lord. May he be a child in God's house, always fellowshipping with him. And we learned last time that dwelling in the house of the Lord, as I said, is not exclusively a desire to be near the physical tabernacle. It's probably true in this case that David's on the run. He's either running from Saul or he's running from Absalom, probably. He's probably not anywhere near the tabernacle, which is why he longs to be near it. But he understood also that the house of the Lord really meant that he intended to live as a child in God's house no matter where he lived. God's tent is big. It's not only located at the top of the hill in Jerusalem. It covers the whole world, and, and, and more than that, it, it covers the whole solar system. And more than that, the house of the Lord covers the entire cosmos, In verse 5, then, David extends the metaphor even further. The house of the Lord should be thought of not only as a place of fellowship with God, but also a place of safety and protection. Whatever that tent is, he can get there. He can get there no matter where he may be. It's a place of safety and protection from his enemies. The word shelter here is a clear reference to the tabernacle of God, though Though David could not be physically near the tent of meeting, he could nevertheless run in the day of trouble to where his father would take him in, into his house, and conceal him or hide him from his enemies under the cover of his tent. Listen, David is saying, when I am afraid, I run to God, no matter where I am. And his tent is never far away. It is a hiding place. It is a place of safety. And so he goes there. And, and when we think about a hiding place, I don't know about you, but I can't help but whenever I look at this verse to recall the story of Corey Ten Boom of Amsterdam, who during the Second World War made, made it her business to hide Jews in the secret chamber of a hollow wall 
in her house. I, I read about that this week, and I just wanted to watch the movie and read the book and watch the second movie, and, and I learned some things about her that I didn't know. Very, very impressive. I really thought her dad was leading the way, and it wasn't true. By then, he was kind of losing his wits, and she was kind of the leader of the household. And the resistance to Nazi journey, uh, Germany found out that she was hiding Jews. And they sent an architect to her home and said, bet we can do something here. And they created a brick wall concealing a hiding place that they could get to by crawling through a false door in, a, in, a, uh, in, in, in a, like a towel cabinet in her bedroom. And it was big enough to hold eight people with some supplies and, and a radio. And it was all brick. The dogs couldn't smell through it. Uh, nobody could hear them in there. Even when Corey Timboom was arrested, the Jews who were in the hiding place stayed hidden and escaped. I can't help but think about her when I read this text. Corey Timboom and her family risked their lives and several of them lost their lives seeking to hide Jews from their enemies. But running to the Lord for, for refuge, in one sense, is a little bit dissimilar than to running to God for his hiding place. It's different because while it's true that the Ten Boon family could hide them from the enemy, they had no power to protect them from the Gestapo. God, however, could not only hide his people from his enemies, it was no problem to protect them. Case in point, uh, Jehoshaphat, got to go to war, sending you into battle. Okay, Lord, how do you want us to do it? Follow my instructions clearly. First people onto the battlefield is the praise team, <laughs> the choir. Bring the horns, bring the tambourines, bring your best voices. Bring the soldiers too, we're not going to need them. We're not going to need them for a while. The Lord has no trouble rescuing his people, hiding them, and protecting them, defending them. And so running to God as his refuge was like running to a mighty fortress built on a rock so high that the enemy's arrows just they couldn't even reach him. And that's what he says. He would conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And by the way, in Psalm 18, David combines all of these metaphors into one psalm. And let me just read a piece of it. Here's what David says. I love you, O Lord. Uh, by the way, there was a, a famous Christian preacher whom I love. But he made a comment that nowhere in the Bible do you find... See, he was criticizing uh, modern Christian music on the radio, and, and, I, and I'm all for that, you know. We, we, <laughs> we should at least be discerning. Um, and he said, nowhere in the Bible do you find, uh, find someone saying to the Lord, I love you. Um, I, I, I found a place where, that's, where he's wrong, and it's Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord. And, but then he continues, and here's the point. I want you to see these metaphors. I love you, O Lord. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord. Remember that phrase. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And then in that same Psalm, Psalm 18, David declares this, and, and I, in my days of trouble over the years, I have prayed this 10,000 times, reminding my soul of this truth. Namely, that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. This is the clear and repeated promise of God. And the application for us seems clear, doesn't it? I mean, the practical expression of David running to God for refuge is, what was that phrase I asked you to remember? 
He calls upon the Lord. I call upon the Lord. What is that? It's prayer. It's prayer. What enemies do you face? What provokes you to fear? What robs you of courage in this life? In the history of the church, Christians have faced very real and terrible enemies. Think Nero, who did everything in his power to kill the Christians, blame the Christians, perhaps for burning Rome, sending them to the Circus Maximus, sending them to the Colosseum. Medieval princes and popes also, I mean, for owning a Bible, for owning a Bible, or for reading it in your own language, or even, in one case, a man was found to have taught his children the Lord's Prayer in English. They burned him at the stake for it. The history of the church is full of this. We see it in Paul's day. And Paul was one of the persecutors. And we see it in the 1940s with Corey Timboon and her family and, and many, many others who have suffered, not just under the Nazis who terrorized not only Jews but Christians as well. But, but in all of that age, all through Germany and wherever Germany went, and by the way, I discovered this week that Corey Timboon was a Dutch Reformed Calvinistic Christian. <laughs> Wonderful. I love that. I mean, if, if, uh, if, if Dutch reform and the word Calvinistic, if that just freaks you out, just pretend I didn't say that and we move on. The rest of us enjoy it. <laughs> this is what reformed people do. They risk their lives in their faith in Jesus. Calvin, more than anyone, who started the seminary of death, and these brothers would come out of Catholic France to get trained at his seminary, and he'd send them right back as missionaries who knew they were going to die Today we live in freedom from such harsh and deadly persecution, at least for now, but we still have enemies. We have the world that tempts us to deny Christ. We have the flesh that never helps in our battle against temptation. We have the devil that roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I dare, dare say that there are likely more than a couple of people hearing my voice right now who feel utterly defeated and captive by one of these enemies. And I would say to you, you have to learn to fight. You have to learn to fight. You've got to fight for it. God isn't going to believe for you. He's not going to obey for you. If that's your Calvinism, then that's, not, uh, that's something other than the truth of Scripture. He's not going to do it for you. He will empower you. He will even give you the will, but you have to act on it. You have to battle this. You have to fight against temptation. You have to fight against fear. You have to fight against your lack of courage to be what God wants you to be in the moment. I mean, it's easy to say that you should be ready to preach, pray, or die in a minute. But when you're looking your enemies in the eye and you're feeling mighty intimidated, it's a hard thing. And for those of you who feel like you're defeated this morning, I, I want you to hear loud and clear, you don't have to be. You don't have to be. To what do you turn for refuge then, if not God? When the enemy of your soul tempts you to abandon God's truth and you go your own way? To what refuge do you run when you feel you've been betrayed by someone you trusted? Like Corey Tinboon, that's how she ended up in jail. One of her neighbors betrayed her. To what do you run for refuge when financial crisis descends upon you? Listen, there is only one rock, there is only one fortress, there is only one deliverer who is always present, always able to help, always able to save. And notice again verse 1 of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Look at verse 9. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, cast me, uh, cast, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. This is the kind of salvation he's talking about rescuing you from your enemies, rescuing you from, really, and we could say it more accurately this way, rescuing you from the fear of your enemies. And John Bunyan, I'm not going to 
trying to dis discipline myself not to preempt too much of John Bunyan before January 6th. John Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress, uh, when Christian uh, gets to the place of the interpreter, this is representing kind of his first pastor who's pointing him to Christ, uh, or he had just come to Christ. And he's trying to explain the ways of the kingdom, the ways and, and the things in the world he's going to face. And he shows him a fortress. And there are soldiers all over the fortress. And uh, there's a man in the front who had a book, and he's waiting there for anyone to come up and sign up to go attack these enemies in this castle that should belong to the Lord, and nobody's going. And then out of the blue, this man, this young man comes up, and he signs his name, and he says, I'll, I'll attack this fortress, and he takes his sword and his shield, and he runs up, and, and, the, and the soldiers start falling left and right, and Christian says, wait, 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 what is going on here? They, they looked so formidable. And the man says, oh, they were just paper soldiers. They looked like they were all that. And they weren't. Not with God. Not with God. So pray. Pray because you find your refuge in God. Number four. Pray because you're thankful to God. Look at verse 6, and I just read it, but let's read it again. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now, this is the appropriate response of believers who discover that their prayers for help have been answered. I, you know, when you come to this verse, and I think the ten lepers, right? The, the, the story of the ten lepers. Jesus healed ten. They all just, they were so excited that Jesus said, go to the priest and show yourself according to the instructions of the law. They all left. And then one of them stops and turns around and falls before Jesus in grateful thanksgiving. And he was a Samaritan, right? Just, just to thicken the plot a little bit here. And Jesus says, well, thank you very much, but where's the other nine? Where are the other nine? Oh, well, they're sitting in church on Sunday. <laughs> they're in this room. Sometimes they're in this pulpit. When the Lord answers prayer, how do we respond? You know, I've encouraged you before to develop a, thank, a Thanksgiving journal so you can keep track of these things. It's so important. It's so important. Last week when the elders... We're looking over our financial uh, records for the past quarter. You know, we went through a, a, a difficult time financially a year or two ago, and so we've been very vigilant in watching over it. And, and last week the report came in. We are, we are not only out of the hole, but we're doing great. And, uh, and somebody in the elders said, hey, let's stop. Let's just thank the Lord for this. We had the sweetest time of Thanksgiving and prayer last Sunday and this Sunday as well. How many times have we cried out to the Lord in, in battle against temptation or some other difficulty or disaster and God answers our prayer and we fail to give thanks? You want to know how you should pray? I'm trying to think, oh, what, what should I say when I come? How about thanking him for all the things that he's done, or, or maybe just two or three of the things that he has recently done and answers to your prayer. But, but beloved, understand the assumption is that you're praying at all. If you're not praying, then you're not getting answered prayer because you're not asking for anything. And we should be asking, and not just asking, but worshiping. Here David is facing not one enemy, but a multitude of enemies. He says, they are all around me. But now God has rescued him, so what does he do? Shouts of joy and sacrifice. I mean, he's singing from the, from the top of his lungs as loud as he can. And beloved, I, I know so many of your testimonies because you've told me. And some of them I've been deeply involved in. And I know how some of you once upon a time faced a particular trial that was so bad so harmful, so hurtful, so discouraging that you felt that life as you knew it was over. The joy was gone. 
never to return as far as you could tell. But God. That's your testimony, right? The circumstances left you hopeless and helpless, but God. When you least expected it, God stepped in and and worked a seemingly miraculous repentance in the person that you were at odds with. You thought you lost that relationship forever. Or maybe it was a physical recovery. Like with the case with my mom, we were sure she was, we'd already made funeral arrangements. When she recovered, or financial rescue, or whatever it is, and And now when we meet together and sing God's praises, you can't help but sing from the deepest parts of your being as loud as your lungs will sing, sometimes with hands lifted high and tears streaming down your face. And when I see that, I think, I know. Glory to God. I know it's coming out of that person's heart. David's been there. And David, being king, was then been, been there again and again and again and again and again. He knows what it's like to be rescued by the hand of the Lord. And in response to such providential and personal care, he rejoices with both thanksgiving and praise. And notice he's anticipating it here. He says, I will offer in the tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. This is my plan. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan? What do you do when God answers your prayer? Well, here's the plan. Respond. Respond with joy. Respond with extravagant praise. Respond with heartfelt thanksgiving. Verbalize it. Tell other people. Tell me. I want to hear about it. I want to rejoice with you. He knows what it's like to be rescued. In in response to what God has done, he, he gives thanks and praise. And so pray, beloved. Pray because you're thankful to God. Number five, pray because you're desperate for God. Again, this is the day of trouble, right? This is, this is not Thanksgiving Day. This is not Christmas Day, which he didn't have anyway. He was in the day of trouble. And sometimes when you face the day of trouble, and, and when, the, when the intensity of the trouble is really, really high, you pray because you're desperate for God. You're desperate. I mean, you just don't know what to do. Look at verses 7 through 12. It's a pretty big chunk here. Verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek Hide not your face from me. Turn not away from your servant in anger. Oh, you who have been my help. And by the way, just that phrase right there tells me David's been here before. You have been my help. I have tasted your past grace. I'm asking you to help me trust you for your promises of future grace. And the next moment, the next hour, the next week, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Now the mood here changes suddenly and radically. At verse 7. This is why some scholars um, propose that perhaps what we have here is two psalms that were at some point sewn together. And I think there's reasons to reject that view. Um, and we won't go into that. But we can talk about it later if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Um, but what I see here is perhaps, again, the Holy Spirit is, is leaving things open-ended for us. 
And um, so if you use a little bit of sanctified imagination, what could have happened? He's writing this psalm. And in the middle of it, his trouble takes an unfortunate turn. And instead of getting better, it gets worse. It gets worse. He's all about in the first six verses, oh, Lord, I trust you. You've been so good to me. I can't wait to fellowship with you. Hate to be away from your house. Love to be near your house. You've taken such good care of me. You always hide me under your tent. And then verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry. Be gracious to me and answer me. The mood changes. David is desperate. David is praying in desperation. Perhaps in the, in the middle of it all, something terrible happened that that was worse than what he had before. He's in a situation that has almost tempted him to panic. You ever been there? His enemies are numerous and powerful. Verse 12 says, false witnesses have risen against me, threatening violence. He doesn't know what to do. He's desperate. He seems like everyone but God has abandoned him. And so what does he do? He cries out to God in in desperation. And notice this choice of words, verse 7. Be gracious, some of the translations say, be merciful to me. I'll come back to that in a minute. Be merciful to me, verse 9. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, verse 12. Give me not up to my, advi- my adversaries. Gabeline offers this explanation. He says, the, repetition, the repetitious language communicates the intensity of the soul-searching and the greatness of his need. He's desperate. And when you read David's cry for help, it almost seems like he feels culpable for whatever the trouble is that he's in. That's why I said, remember Mercy. Mercy. Hear, O Lord, when I cry, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. We can identify with this, can't we? And we think about the possibility that, that part of the issue here with David is that he did something wrong. And it may not have been a big deal. We're not told what it is. But the consequences were significant. I mean, when you're king, almost any decision you make has unintended consequences reverberating through the nation. I mean, think about Joshua. You remember when Keith was preaching and still is preaching through Joshua? Um, and he got to the Gibeonites. Remember, they, were, they crossed the river. They were taking the land, and it was the Jebusites or the termites or <laughs> one of those mites. <laughs> they came to him, and they had the moldy bread, and the worn-out clothes, and the dirty beasts, and they had you know, wineskins that, that were rotted, and they said, we come from a far country, make a covenant with us. And the Lord said, do not make a covenant with these people, the people of this land. And they said, no, 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 we're not from this land. They lied. And Joshua made a decision that seemed pretty insignificant. Okay, look, they're... They qualify. They're, they're from outside the land. I mean, I mean, they told us so, right? <laughs> That's not a good reason. They told us so. And look, there's evidence that they, they traveled a long way. So let's make a covenant with them. Seemed like a small decision. Um, it just about was their ruin. I suggest to you that, that the tone that David is giving here is, Lord, I know at least in some measure, this is my fault. My wound is self-inflicted. The enemies are on the attack, but it's, I gave them the opportunity. And sometimes our darkest days are at least partially self-inflicted. Sometimes our financial problems are self-inflicted. Sometimes our problems with other people, as much as we want to play the innocent party and be your own defense attorney. Sometimes they're self-inflicted. 
your marriage problems. Woe to you if your enemy is your spouse. But if you're honest with yourself, you would have to look back and say, parts of this problem, maybe a good percentage of it is self-inflicted. We know we've contributed to the problem at least a little, and and we're afraid God is just going to turn his back on us because we caused this. But you know what? Here's the thing. He never does. He never turns his back on his children. Notice verse 8. You have said, seek my face. You could say, you have invited. You have invited me to seek your face in the midst of this, whatever this is. And and I would say that that's what he's saying to you right now. Come, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy burdened. Like the day you first believed, come to me. Come and keep on coming. Believe and keep on believing. Trust and keep on trusting. I have said, seek my face. You have said, seek my face. You might ask, what does it mean to seek God's face? Well, that would be a good question. Obviously, he's not speaking about seeing God's physical face. God is spirit. And besides that, God told Moses in Exodus 10, on the day you see my face, you will die. On the other hand, when Moses went to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, to receive instruction from God in Exodus 33, We're told, quote, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. I think face to face here alludes more to the intimacy of communication than it does of God's, quote, physical presence. Or or maybe this is a better explanation, that God on the days that Moses went to the tent of meeting to meet with God, God did for him in those moments what he did for him on the mountain and said, no, 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 you cannot see my face, but I will show you my, in the King James it says, my hinder parts, my, my back parts, whatever that, I mean, he's, he's spirit. But when he appears in glory, it is a devastating And so he controls, apparently, how much glory to reveal to his children so they don't die. Imagine if God were to show up. And you can imagine it, at least to some level, because you know what happens when angels show up. They always say, don't be afraid. And with Moses, Moses, what we find is when he actually fellowshiped with God in the tent of meeting, He would come away and his face would shine so brightly that it troubled the people of God, or at least the people of Israel, whether they were people of God or not. And so Moses would put on a veil, and he would cover his face for the people's sake. And there were times when the Lord, in judgment against someone who committed serious sin, would, listen to this verbiage, he would set his face against him. Leviticus 20. On the other hand, when the Jewish elders wanted to pronounce blessing on the people, they would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord, listen to these words, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and, listen to this, Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the Lord bring himself into such fellowship with you that you see something of his glory and you are not destroyed, but you are brought peace and help and hope and healing. And so you see, having some face time with the Lord was either dangerous or delightful, depending on one's relationship with him. But God wanted his people to live in the circle of his blessing, so he invited them, come and seek my face, seek my face. That is, seek my blessing, seek my grace. You might ask, if you're studying this passage, 
as I was this week. Where, where did God command David to seek his face? Well, one place is found in that famous text of Scripture. And by the way, the answer you should look to first is, what Scripture? What Scripture? Where in Scripture do we find God saying, seek my face? And one such place is that famous text in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. You can probably quote it. It's quoted uh, every year um, by uh, certain uh, conservative uh, politicians. And here it is. This is from the law of the Lord. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and, I want you to see this connection, pray and seek my face, I don't think he's talking about two different things. I think he's talking about the same thing. Pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. To seek God's face means not only to seek his blessing, although it's certainly that, but more importantly, it is to seek his will It's to seek his will with the intention of obeying it. To seek God's face means, Lord, tell me what to do. I'm seeking your face on this. I want to know what you think about this, what you you teach on this. Help me. And so to seek his face means not only blessing, it means you're seeking his will with the intention of obeying whatever his will is. It means approaching God in prayer and asking for his divine guidance. And we see that here in this text. The parallel is verse 20, in, in, in Psalm 27 is verse 11, where David prays, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me. He's in the middle, he's in the middle of a minefield, Lord. How do we get out? Lead me. Speak to me. Teach me. And he has in his word. Lord, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Shepherd me and I will follow. Rule me and I will obey. That's what it means to seek God's face. And as you're following and being shepherded and obeying God, he makes his countenance shine upon you and blesses you with in the midst of your storm. Uh, there was a song a number of years ago just popped into my mind. It says, sometimes the Lord calms the storm, sometimes he calms his child. And for a child of, of this heavenly father to seek his face is to find his blessing, his help, and his salvation. So, verse 8 In desperation, David declares to the Lord, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, David David knows what righteousness is. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the external forms. That's why later in the Old Testament, God will say, stop making those sacrifices. They're a stench to me because your heart's not in it. And Jesus says, these people honor me with their mouths, but with their lips, but their, their, uh, their hearts are far from me. My heart says to you, O Lord, I seek your face. Hide not your face from me. Again, there's an indication there, at least a nuance there, that he was was thinking, Lord, I deserve for you to turn your face away from me. Please don't. Please don't. It's just like in Psalm 51 when he's praying after the sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. Take not your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Listen, no matter who you are this morning or what you've done, the Lord invites you to seek his face. And if you seek him in the day of trouble, you will discover that though all else fails, your sovereign heavenly Father stands ever at the ready to receive you and be your help and your salvation. You say, well, how do you know? I know that because of verse 10. My father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord, he will take me in. 
In what sense did David's father and mother forsake him? We don't know. He may simply mean that they died. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Kristen, you know, we, we realize this once in a while. It just becomes um, palpably clear that in the mystery of God's providence, uh, the Lord has taken all four of our parents. I, I think there are some times when I just want to go to my dad and say, Dad, what would you do? You know, or how do you fix? Uh, not the electrical stuff. He always blew himself up with those things. But <laughs> you know, other things, how do, I, how do I approach this? What should I say? Dad, in, in the office, help me think through. And he's not here. He didn't mean to forsake me. <laughs> Just his time. So we don't know how David's mother and father forsook him, but they're gone. And he says, the implication here is, the inference here is, the Lord is never gone. He never dies. He never leaves. Lo, I am with you always. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For he is with me. Who wrote that? David. The idea here is that, typically speaking, there, is no, there are no two people in the world who are more devoted to you and your protection and your well-being than your father and mother. But even they are limited in what they can do. That's not true with God. On the other hand, many of you would say that your testimony is the opposite, that you had a terrible relationship with your parents. They, they had no interest in protecting you. They weren't part of the solution. They were the problem and if that's your story, I have good news. God is nothing like your mother or father. And they may still be forsaking you, but the, but the God whom you trust in will never forsake you. Don't project that image of your father upon him. He is not like your dad. They may have forsaken you, but when, when, you, need, when you need them most, they're not there. But the Lord will, here's his phrase, take me in. He will be your light and your salvation, your hiding place, your refuge, your strong tower, your mighty fortress. If you will seek his face in your hour of need. Fanny Crosby was right. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You want to know how to pray? Take everything to him in prayer. I talked to you about Martin Luther last week. It is attributed to him that he said, I have so much to do, I have to spend three hours in prayer this morning to do it. And sometimes circumstances come upon you that feel nothing short of overwhelming. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. We hardly, ever, we hardly even know how to pray. But in those moments, God invites you to come and seek his face. Seek his face for wisdom and instruction. Obey what his word tells you, and you will receive his blessing. He is not a reluctant father. He's the one who initiates in this relationship. He's not waiting for you to make the first move. He's already made the first move, and he does it repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And so when you find yourself in the day of trouble, pray because you're desperate for God. And then finally, number six, pray because your hope is in God. Look at verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I see two things happening in this epilogue of the psalm. First, verse 13, David once again declares his confidence in God, his light, his salvation, his stronghold. He believes that his good and loving Father, who does all things for 
His own glory and our good will answer his prayer and rescue him. I mean, he writes, I believe, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God had been his help in the past. He will be his help again. And he believes God will be everything he has promised to be for him. Does that mean I'll never die? Oh, you can count on it. You're going to die unless the Lord returns. But you know what? You have no reason to fear in this life, regardless of what God calls you to do, because he is your light and your salvation. Second, verse 14, David is either exhorting us or exhorting his own soul to pray when he says, wait on the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, the word wait here, and you should mark this, the word wait often should be translated, and appropriately so here, as hope. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Set your hope on God. His ways are always perfect, and and no matter what the circumstance, we know for certain that he is orchestrating things for our good, whatever your day of trouble may be. Let me remind you of something that you probably already know historically. Back in the 18th century, there was a man who was a dear friend of John Newton. John Newton, as you know, famously wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. The reason he wrote that hymn, it was a series of uh, well over 100 hymns that John Newton wrote, and he he got into writing hymns for a purpose. You see, he had a friend. Uh, Newton was a pastor, and within his parish was a young man by the name of William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. He was fabulously wealthy, but he was often suicidally depressed. And John Newton came, he was trying to minister to him, trying to help him out of his depression. And he comes to William Cooper and he says, hey, I got an idea. I, I, I want to write a hymn book. It ended up being called the Alney Hymn Book, because that's the name of the town they lived in. And um, would you help me? And, and, and this would be really good for you. Why don't, why don't you write a song and I'll write a song and you write a song and I'll write a song and we'll create this hymnal. And it'll be good for your soul." Well, John Newton cranked out some serious hymn, hymnody, and William Cooper didn't do much. A few songs, that some of them are still in our hymn book. So he agreed to help, but he didn't do too many hymns. He didn't create too many hymns. What he did create, however, was uh, a good volume of poetry. In fact, he was such an accomplished poet, he became the poet laureate of England. And he wrote one particular poem that you probably don't recognize its name. See if you can see the connection with this psalm. It's called The Light Shining Out of Darkness. That title might not ring a bell for you, for this poem. But there's a part of this poem that you all know, probably, except maybe some of you younger ones. You older ones have heard this 10,000 times. And here's the phrase that you will know. God works in mysterious ways. How many different contexts have we heard that in? Some of them quite frivolous. (laughs) For many years, this phrase has been a part of our language and culture, but I suspect most of us have little idea of the deep, rich context that this phrase was lifted from. And listen to the part of the poem that contains that phrase. Here we go. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides them upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, Fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind the frowning providence there hides 
a smiling face. David knew it, though he had never heard this poem. David believed this theology. David believed these truths 3,000 years before Cooper penned them, but they are as true for us today as they were 3,000 years ago. And so I say, beloved, be strong, and let your heart take courage. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Beloved, in hardships in this life, it can be very fearful. But God grants us courage when we run to him in prayer. Oh, may God make us a desperate, praying, fellowshipping people. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you once again for your word because it speaks, you speak through it. And we bless your name and we praise you that you care for us so specifically and tenderly. You're concerned not only about our, our circumstances, but how we interpret those circumstances because we, we tend to interpret them the eyes of humanity. And yet, Father, you interpret all of our struggles in the lens of your glory and grace, your sovereign mercy and love. Oh, Father, help us trust you. And when the next day of trouble comes, May we not have forgotten these things, but may we find our hearts running to you, running to you, and finding in you everything that you've promised to be for us. Lord, we praise you, and we give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.